Pushkin. We grew up really poor in upstate New York. My, my, both my parents immigrated from Romania. This is Vlad Shatuk, a grad student at Yale. I've known Vlad for over 10 years now, since he was just a freshman in college. But this is the first time we've talked about his childhood. We were broke, but we had a lot of land. So, you know, when my mom first moved into the house, she planted some cherry trees and she planted a raspberry bush and she planted like blueberry bushes. And every time there'd be a sort of new season, she'd be like, no matter what you do, don't eat any of it. If you see something, grab a handful and then like bring it to me and then you can eat it. And we're like, okay, that's kind of weird, but whatever. You might think Vlad's mom was paranoid that her kids would eat something poisonous or maybe waste some perfectly good berries. But that wasn't what was going on. Vlad's mom wanted him to learn the power of an important Romanian family ritual. She'd put the raspberries in the palm of her hand and she'd like start signing a cross over it and she'd say this thing in Romanian and then she'd tell us to say this thing in Romanian. I, I don't speak Romanian particularly well. I, I, it's it's going to sound bad. She'd say like, Sofia pentru Sofitil lui Jorge was her, was her dad's name. And she'd ask us to say, uh, prosta Sofia permit. But what she'd say in Romanian was she'd be like, let this be for the soul of, and she'd say her father's name. And then we'd say like, God bless, let it be received or something like that. And then we'd eat it. And the idea is when we're eating it, like her dad in heaven would be tasting whatever the fruit was. And you do that for like the first new whatever of every year. As a kid, Vlad didn't totally know what to make of all this. He just wanted to eat the fruit he'd found in his yard. But the tradition made his mom happy. So he went along with it. I'm not religious, which is, I think, mostly just like a polite way of saying that I don't think anything happens to you after you die. So I don't think, you know, my mom's dad is up in heaven tasting raspberries. Rituals like the one Vlad's mom embraced can sometimes feel outdated, irrational, and downright weird. At best, these practices seem like a waste of time. But was Vlad's mom onto something? Could strange rituals like these be more beneficial than we think? Our minds are constantly telling us what to do to be happy. But what if our minds are wrong? What if our minds are lying to us, leading us away from what will really make us happy? The good news is that understanding the science of the mind can point us all back in the right direction. You're listening to The Happiness Lab with Dr. Laurie Santos. I take after my mom in a lot of ways. You know, I don't necessarily share all of these qualities, but she's one of the, just like the smartest, strongest but also just like stupidly stubborn people I've met <laughs> and, and at least inherited, I think, some of the strong-headedness. Vlad's mom, Paula, was the most vibrant person he'd ever known, which made it all the more shocking when she received some devastating health news. So it wasn't that she had cancer and it spread. She actually just got both breast cancer and cervical cancer at the same time. Like the entire oncology department at the hospital she was going to like had to have a meeting to figure out like what to do because they'd never, they'd never seen that before. Vlad watched this disease ravage his mom. It was one of the worst periods of his life. When he talks about it, and this is a warning, by the way, he can't help but use some pretty strong language. Cancer really, really fucks you up. It, it does really, really ugly things, and you could tell she was in a lot of pain. But she absolutely refused to take opiate painkillers for reasons I still don't fathom. I still don't know how she managed that. Vlad's mom survived longer than the doctors predicted. But eventually, he got the news he feared most. If you haven't experienced losing someone really, really close to you, it's just, it's one of those things where you just kind of don't realize just how horrible it is until you're in it. For pretty much two or three months straight, I was just at home, like, doing nothing. And then, you know, if I could get up before one, that would be a good day. You need people to remind you to eat because you just don't feel like doing anything. You know, just, like, months of that. Vlad was eventually able to return to his daily activities. But even nearly four years later, 
his mom's passing still affects him deeply. I mean, grief is just, it's, 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 it's hard. The bad times get fewer and far between, but that pain is always there and it never goes away. Which is one of the reasons that Vlad has come back to that Romanian family ritual. I'll say it with my mom's name. I'll say Sofia Pentruz Fitule Paula. And then I'd have someone I care about eat it. Vlad performs this ceremony every time raspberries come into season. And he feels guilty when he forgets. I don't remember what it was. I saw something and then I realized I'd eaten it before. And I was like, shit, like I missed my window to like do the thing with mom. Vlad performs the ritual. But he still doesn't believe the practice works. I don't think my mom's up in heaven eating, you know, the eggplant dish she taught me to make. Or, um, you know, raspberries when I find them in the store. But... But you still do it. I still do it, yeah. And I think that's exactly the sort of reason why it's nice. It's like, I don't need to believe it's real. It's really easy to kind of get lost in the day-to-day of life where it's like, no matter what's going on, you know, I always have papers I should be reading. You know, I've I've always got like studies I should be running. So it's really easy to just like not ever take the time to sort of like step back and appreciate the fact that my mom's dead and I miss her and I still love her and I'm thinking about her. And since Vlad and I were chatting about his mom anyway, he thought it'd be nice to show me how the ritual worked. I don't know if it's weird. My mom made some sour cherry syrup. She used to do this a lot. And it keeps forever, so I've still got some. So I don't know if you want to drink it, and then I can say it, and then you can drink it, and then my mom can taste it. Oh, that'd be awesome. Do I do that? Did you bring it? I brought oh my it. Gosh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I did think it was pretty amazing to be part of the Shatuk family tradition. But I was also a bit scared, honestly. I mean, Vlad pulled out an ancient-looking bottle with some weird sedimenty crimson liquid inside. It didn't even really have a lid. The top was just covered by some old piece of plastic shopping bag that was held on with lots of rubber bands. I started to feel like I really was an important link in this hallowed ancient tradition, which for all I knew stretched back hundreds of years. I was also really honored that Vlad wanted to share Paola's cherry concoction with me. This small container was all he had left. But the bottle was still pretty weird. The top of it is really sketchy. Yeah, it's I'm really sketchy. I'm sorry. Yeah, so it smells good. I was like a little nervous, but... But if you don't want it, like if you don't want it, wait. So I'm going to say the thing. Okay. And then you're going to say the thing. I'm just signing the crossover. Safia, Pentru, Suflatul, E. Paola. And they say, Boda Proste. Boda Proste. Safia. Safia. Primit. Primit. Yeah. And then just have a little sip. Paola. (laughs) To to, to Paola. So. so. Oh, it's good. Yeah. For the next few minutes, Vlad and I sat in the tiny recording studio and enjoyed the cherry seltzer which really was quite tasty. And for the first time in our interview, he laughed and seemed comfortable. We were finally able to talk about his mom in a way that didn't feel so emotionally charged. My mom loved you, by the way. She'd always ask about you every time I called. I love your mom. She raised an awesome kid, man. Oh, stop. Even though Vlad doesn't believe the ritual works in the literal sense, his family practice has clearly had a huge positive effect on him. So much so that he plans to keep this family legacy going. Someday when I have children and, you know, I'm gone, my kids, I hope, will, when they see raspberries, they'll say it with my name and think about me, you know, at least once a year. You know, knock on wood, at least once a year. I think if I could get my kids to think about me once a year after I'm dead, that'd be a, that'd be nice. Rituals are, in fact, pervasive in every aspect of our life. I'm talking with Francesca Gino and her collaborator, Mike Norton. They're both professors at Harvard Business School where they study the science behind rituals. The big cultural ones like baptisms, weddings, rites of passage, the kinds of things that are passed down for generations. 
But they also look at the little personal rituals, too. For listeners who have kids and are parents, you can think about the ritual of reading before bedtime. I started to think about examples in my own life. My producer and I getting our morning coffee every day from the same place before we start writing. Or the end-of-the-day chat that I cherish with my husband before we go to bed. Or the warm licorice tea I prepare before going into the studio. At face value, these personal behaviors don't seem to have that much in common with Vlad's raspberry blessing. They're too mundane. But Mike and Francesca have found that they still have a lot of the same elements. And one of those elements is how strongly we feel about our rituals. One way to think about it is when you get up in the morning, do you brush your teeth and then take a shower? Or do you take a shower and then brush your teeth? Can you tell me which one you are? I'm definitely a shower then teeth person. Okay. And then how do you feel if I ask you right now to imagine doing it in the other order? It's weird. Like those people must have (laughs) some problems or something. (laughs) Exactly. Around the world, like half of people brush their teeth and shower and like the other half shower and then brush their teeth. About half of those people don't care if I say flip the order. Mm -hmm. And about half really care like you. Either they say it feels weird to me. And also, as you said, they're doing it wrong. (laughs) Those other people obviously don't understand that it's better to brush your teeth and then shower. And so showering and brushing your teeth can be a habit. You know, I do both of those things in the morning. I don't really care what order I do them in. Then it's more of a habit. If you suddenly start to care about the order in which you do them and you start to think that other people who do it differently are wrong, now we're further on the continuum toward ritual. I didn't realize I was such a passionate member of Team Shower First. But this conversation made me realize that a lot of my daily behaviors were more ritualistic than I thought, and that I was falling prey to one of the oddest things about rituals. They have the power to generate really, really strong feelings. Mike and Francesca became interested in why we take these ritual behaviors so seriously, and why we even engage in many of our weirder traditions in the first place. They started by probing traditions like the one Vlad used, the rituals we use to honor people after they die. They're quite powerful, they're quite deep, and when people experience a loss, they engage in mourning rituals that seem to differ across cultures. So, for example, if you think about crying near the person who's dying, that is something that is viewed as disruptive by Buddhists, but it's actually a sign of respect by the Catholic Latinos. When we think of grieving... We often think of widely used cultural rituals, like, say, sending flowers or gathering for prayers. But as Mike and Francesca looked more deeply, they discovered that these shared rituals were just the tip of the iceberg. We did a couple surveys really early on where we asked people, think of someone you loved who passed away. Tell us how you felt and what you did. And what was so weird is that people would write, you know, there was a funeral or there was a wake or there was some ceremony. And then most of what they would write would be about what they did by themselves, often without ever even telling anyone that they had done it. People didn't only take part in big public ceremonies that were sanctioned by their culture or faith. They also created smaller private rituals, ones no one else knew about. One person wrote, I would listen to their favorite song and cry thinking of them privately, not in public, not communal, not religious, just me. One woman wrote, whose husband passed away, I washed his car every week, as he used to. 
So when he passed away, she could have gotten rid of the car and instead she kept it and washed it in his honor. And nobody knew about that either, right? So you could say, you know, that's kind of a silly thing to do to wash a car you don't drive. But if you have any human emotion at all, you can see how powerful that would be for her as a way to honor that person and maybe even recover from the loss. But do these made-up rituals really have the power to help us recover from grief? Do they work as well as the time-worn culturally sanctioned ones? We'll examine the science when the Happiness Lab returns in a moment. Support for this podcast comes from State Farm. With surprisingly great rates, State Farm is the real deal when it comes to home and car insurance. State Farm agents are in your neighborhood, ready to help personalize your insurance. And you can manage your coverage, pay your bill, or even file a claim right from your phone with the State Farm mobile app. Visit statefarm.com today to get a great rate without sacrificing great service. That's statefarm.com. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for this podcast comes from Stella Artois. This summer, enjoy the life Artois. You can experience it anywhere from your patio to the tidal basin. All it takes is being present, being there with the people you love and a cold Stella Artois in hand. Wherever you are, you're never too far from the life Artois. Stella Artois. Please enjoy responsibly. Want to go on a trip? You want to go on a trip? You excited? Do you know where we're going? Do you know where we're going? I know. You're so good. Come on. I know you're excited. Back in 2012, a few years before Paula got sick, Vlad adopted a small stray puppy, Toad. I mean, he was like just covered in ticks, flea infested. He had a, a pretty bad case of heartworms. So my mom said getting Toad was the best thing that ever happened to me, which I think is probably right. Toad came on the scene right after Vlad graduated from college. Vlad was lonely and lost, and having a fragile creature to take care of gave him some structure and purpose. No matter what, every day I had to get up and I had to like feed this dog and walk this dog. No matter what, I'd go home and he'd be there, you know, wanting to like hang out with me and be always really, really excited to see me. We'd go on these like long walks. Pretty much the entirety of my adult life, it felt like sort of, you know, like a boy and his dog sort of movie. When Vlad talks about Toad, it does sound a bit like a bromance film. I think everyone thinks their dog is, you know, particularly handsome and photogenic, but I think Toad was actually just... Just a very handsome and photogenic dog. So he did very well on social media. He was just like this huge ball of energy. He was really excitable. He loved people. He loved cuddling. Vlad exaggerates a lot, but he's being honest about this one. It's something I saw firsthand. Toad has won the heart of everyone he's ever met, including me. Um, sometimes I'd like wear him like a scarf. He really liked that. And how um, heavy was he again? He was 65 pounds. So I'd like wear him around my neck. I'd like hold him like a baby. Um... But, but my mom only met Toad once, um, so I found out she was sick and I really, really wanted her to meet Toad, partly because she like always really, really wanted grandkids. But I think Toad was probably the closest she got to having grandkids. The introduction went even better than expected. She absolutely loved him and he absolutely loved her, and it was just this like really special weekend. During their only meeting, Paula gave Toad a gift he'd treasure a huge red ball. He just instantly latched onto it, became like his favorite toy. And he would just like literally carry that around with him everywhere. I don't believe in stuff like that, but it felt, you know, it, it felt very, very meaningful. Both Vlad and Toad loved this hunk of red plastic. In the years after Paula passed, they were both ready to protect that toy, no matter what. When Toad was hopping out of the car, he kind of like knocked the ball out with him. And the ball just starts rolling into the highway. And then just immediately in my head, I'm like, I'm going to be that idiot that you read about on the news 
who like crosses <laughs> I-95 <laughs> to get a toy for his dog. <laughs> and this is it, like, this is how I'm gonna die. Like, I can't leave this ball here. Like, I need to get this ball. Like, there's no way I'm leaving this ball here. And then just like, it lightly nicks a car, like, right on the other side and just like, rolls back to the side of the road I'm on. And I like, picked up and put it in. I was like, don't believe any like, spooky shit like that. But it, stuff like that. You're like, oh, maybe, maybe, you know, Mama Chitek's looking down. It came really out of nowhere. I just woke up one day and he was at the foot of my bed, uh, collapsed and shaking. So that was really concerning. So I kind of like rushed him to the emergency vet and they told me, you know, his, his heart wasn't working. Toad had cancer. The news was devastating. There was never any way to have that go in a case where he wasn't dead probably within a year. Vlad didn't give up hope. He did a ton of research to make sure Toad got the best state-of-the-art cancer treatments. For a few months, it seemed to work. But then Toad's symptoms worsened, and Vlad's sense of control was shattered once again. In the end, putting Toad to sleep was the only humane option. We both wound up crying in my recording studio as Vlad described letting his best friend go one Sunday morning last fall. So I'm just sitting there with his head on my lap. And, you know... The whole time I'm just kind of like stroking his head and, you know, telling him, you know, how lucky I am. <laughs> but then, um, I'm just sitting there with his tongue out and it felt really perfect because he was like a silly dog. Like he wasn't a serious dog. He never took anything seriously. Um, <clears throat> sorry. Do you want to take a break? When something bad happens, like a death or a relationship ends, kind of our sense of control is hurt. This is not something I wanted to happen. Maybe I'm not really in charge of my life. And rituals seem to help restore that sense of control. It's almost as though doing this controlled behavior makes us feel a little bit more in control again. And that can predict whether or not we get over the loss faster. Mike Norton suspected that creating rituals might be a strategy we can all use to gain back a sense of agency when things feel unmanageable. To test this idea, he needed to do a controlled study. But of course, he couldn't replicate the kind of awful grief that someone like Vlad had experienced. So we thought, is there anything we can do in the lab that's like a loss like that? And the answer is no. But the thing we landed on was having people lose a lot of money. In one experiment, we brought 10 people into our lab and we told them, one of you is going to win $200 and get to leave without filling out any of these surveys, and the rest of you have to stay. We asked all of them to write about what they would do if they won the $200, which is mean. Then we told one of them, and it was real, you won. We pulled a random number and they won, and they really got to leave with the $200. And now everyone else is stuck there thinking about their loss. Again, I'm not trying to say that losing <laughs> you know, a couple hundred dollars is the same as losing a loved one. Of course it's not. But we see some of the same dynamics, actually, that, that when you lose this thing you wanted, even in this contrived setting in our lab, people feel a little bit less a sense of control. After fantasizing about money they didn't get, the subjects were pretty upset. But could Mike and Francesca create a ritual to ease their pain? So we give people a piece of paper and we say, draw a picture of how you're feeling right now. And they're actually extremely funny <laughs> to watch. Like, how do you represent that you've lost $200 in pictorial form? Some people, they just kind of make an angry scribble, for example. Then we say, sprinkle some salt on it. An insane number of rituals all over the world involve salt, throwing salt, sprinkling salt. 
And then after you sprinkle salt on it, we say, now tear it into tiny pieces. The subjects were then asked a few questions. How sad are you about losing all that money? And to what extent do you feel like you have control over things that happen in the world generally? The results were striking. People who did the ritual reported feeling significantly less sorrow than those that didn't perform the action. It might seem silly, but when people do engage in a ritual after the loss, they feel more in control. And as a result of it, they experience less grief. So in a sense, they're less sad about the loss itself. But the thing I find most fascinating about the lottery study is that the ritual made subjects feel better, despite the fact that it was a totally new and pretty ridiculous behavior. I mean, Francesca and Mike's subjects weren't engaging in some ancient funeral rite that was passed down for generations. They just sprinkled salt on a piece of paper and tore it up. It was pretty much one of the stupidest rituals Mike and Francesca could come up with. But that still led to a significant increase in subjects' sense of control, as well as a big reduction in the amount of grief they felt. The lottery studies show us that doing something that feels like a ritual can have a positive effect on our well-being, even the first time we do it, which is a really important finding. It means we can just make up a new ritual anytime we need one. When we get back from the break, we'll talk about how you can use this strategy to deal with tough moments in your own life. Those job rejections, the failed exams, the horrible breakups. It turns out you can create your own personal ritual to help you through whatever bad events life throws your way. In fact, we'll see this is exactly what Vlad has planned to do to heal after losing Toad. And I'll warn you, the particular ritual he's come up with is going to be a bit, well, inventive. And if I could take a little bit and just like carry it around with me, you know, forever, like I think that's a really neat idea. Take a little bit and inject it into your own Yeah, take body. a little bit and inject it into my body. It's like morbid and weird as that sounds. I wouldn't say morbid and weird. I would say maybe gross. Was <laughs> 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 the adjective I was going to use? The Happiness Lab will be right back. Hey there, I'm Ashley Ford, host of the Chronicles of Now podcast. Chronicles of Now commissions amazing authors like Roxane Gay, Colin McCann, Carmen Maria Machado, and Curtis Sittenfeld to write short fiction inspired by the headlines. Each episode features a new work of fiction inspired by the biggest stories of our time, like what does COVID-19 do to our relationships? How do we make sense of climate change and extinction? And perhaps most mysteriously, what is going on with Trump's tweets? Because in such uncertain times, sometimes art, fiction, is the only way to make sense of it all. The show is great for fans of short speculative fiction, historical novels, podcasts that go behind the news, and narrative shows like Radiolab and The Moth. The Chronicles of Now is imaginative storytelling at its most compelling. Authors helping us understand our world. Subscribe in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Brought to you by Pushkin Industries. I had this idea for a while, but then, you know, once I found out he was sick, I was like, okay, no, I absolutely have to do this. When Vlad's mom, Paula, passed away, he had an obvious way to mourn her death. He used his family's time-honored berry ritual. But when Vlad's beloved dog, Toad, died of cancer, it wasn't as obvious how to deal with that loss. As a culture, we don't really have shared rituals for mourning our pets, even though their loss can often feel as bad as losing a close family member. As a graduate student in psychology, Vlad knew that a ritual might help him mourn the loss of his dear friend. So he decided to get creative. I want to get a tattoo of Toad's face. 
And then one of the other things I'm thinking about incorporating is the red ball that my mom got for him. And then um, raspberries for, for my mom. I think that'd be really sweet. But Vlad also wanted Toad to become a part of him in the physical, literal sense. So in addition to getting a tattoo yeah. of Toad's picture, mm-hmm. you also wanted to have the tattoo kind of reflect Toad even in a more personal yeah. way. So I didn't even know this was a thing you could do. And I think it's actually a really cool idea. You know, right now I've got a box full of my dog's ashes. I kind of like put it on the spot where he used to sit and look out over the window, but I don't know what else to do with it. But I guess you can take ashes and just like mix it with the tattoo ink. And then that way, then you have dog ash below your skin. That's right. Vlad is considering permanently injecting Toad's ashes into his body. So he and his best friend can be together forever. I mean, some people probably see this ritual as a little weird. The word disgusting may even spring to mind. But that's not how Vlad sees it. You don't find it gross. You find it really meaningful. I think it's cool. I think it's cool. I'm also like, I think I'm the prime target for like getting dog ashes tattooed onto your body. I think it was probably made for people like me who are like obsessed with their dogs. And like, I find some appeal to it. I think a lot of it's going to depend on whether the tattoo artist is cool with it. You don't want really a kind of half-ass dog ash tattoo. I don't want a half-ass dog ash tattoo. No, no, no. Vlad's still not sure of some of the specifics. Where the tattoo will go on his body, dead dog ashes or no dead dog ashes. But there's one thing he is certain about. The fact that this tattoo will allow him to gain more control over a really difficult situation and bring some order to what so far has been a blizzard of constant grief. Anything you can do to kind of intentionally make you think about someone that you love or someone that you've lost or something that you're grieving is going to be helpful because you don't even realize until you lose them just like how much mental real estate that's taking up. I had, you know, a lot of these micro devastating moments, like I'm trying to check my dog's water and it's not there because I put the bowl away because he died two weeks ago. Like that's really shitty and that's going to hurt every time that happens. But I think every reminder you can get, that's kind of when you decide to do where it's like, I'm not thinking about my dog because I'm like caught off guard. I'm thinking about my dog because like he was important to me and I love him, and I miss him, um, that that just, like, feels a lot better. And at least, you know, it still feels sad, but it doesn't feel, like, devastating, and you don't, like, want to scream when it happens. Psychologists Mike Norton and Francesca Gino have found that Vlad is onto something important. Creative personal rituals, like the tattoo Vlad is planning, can help people take control of otherwise out-of-control-seeming situations, no matter what the event. In fact, They've found that rituals can also bring us peace during sad events that are more common than the sudden death of a loved one. In the same research where we asked people think of someone you loved who's passed away, we also asked another group of people about a different kind of loss, which is think of a relationship that ended that you didn't want to end. And the stories are very, very sad, (laughs) of course. And people write really, really fascinating things. One young woman wrote that she got all the pictures from the time they were dating, even the ones where she looked really good in them. And then she took them to the park where they first kissed and burned them. First people laugh and then everyone's like, oh, I kind of did that one time too, but but so maybe she's okay. But those sorts of things, they right, it seems like not a healthy way perhaps to deal with, you know, a relationship that ended. But it turns out again that those can help us get over the loss a little bit. Now, again, Doing a ritual doesn't make you feel supremely in control and now you don't care about the breakup. Of course not. But they seem to be, again, one sort of tool or trigger to help us along that path. 
Rituals give us a powerful and really cheap way to feel more agency when things in life feel really out of control, which is one of the reasons so many cultures use them to help us get through sad events all the time. But we don't need an ancient ritual or even one we've practiced over and over to make it through the nasty things in life. We can just make up our own. The problem, though, is that most of us don't realize we have such a powerful tool at our fingertips. Our lying minds have no idea how helpful a ritual can be. We dismiss them as silly or old-fashioned, and so we don't use them nearly as often as we should. I mean, how many of you came up with a new ritual the last time you got bad news at work, or had a fight with your partner, or even just had a worse day than usual? Part of the message behind the research is to suggest that rituals can make life better. They can make us happier. And so I'm hoping that given that there are rituals that stood up to the test of time, I hope that we're going to see them also in the future. And that is what Vlad realized. If there was one thing that became most clear during our interview, it's the fact that Vlad is pretty sure that his tattoo procedure is going to make him happier. I'm sure I'm going to sob a lot through it. I'm sure I'm going to solve a lot afterwards. I think there's going to be a period where I'm going to probably be sad when I look at it a lot, you know, but also like the kind of good sad. And I'm I'm honestly really, really excited. It's something I've been looking forward to for a while. And I think it's going to, I think it's going to be really nice. So Vlad got his tattoo. The tattooist wasn't all that keen about adding Toad's ashes into the mix. So Vlad went with a detailed picture of Toad's happy face on his forearm. Yeah, I can hear you. How's it going? Um, I'm doing good. I'm extremely excited. It was clear that Vlad was feeling sad, just as he predicted. But the science suggests that engaging in this tattoo ritual will help Vlad recover from his grief even more quickly. And there's a lesson in that for all of us. When we're faced with an upsetting or challenging event, we can create a ritual or one-off ceremony to suit the moment. It can be something destructive, symbolically rip up that rejection letter for a job you wanted but didn't get. Or it can be constructive, like baking a divorce cake to mark the end of a relationship. It can be poignant, like planting a tree, or a bit pointless, like cutting up the t-shirt your ex gave you. And you don't even have to believe that the ritual will have some magical or spiritual effect. Just taking time to think about and perform the ritual seems to be enough to ease your pain. So that's the end of another episode, which is so sad. If you, like me, are feeling a little bereft at the thought of our parting, why not do a ritual right now? How about you go to the place where you got your podcasts and write a review? Or just tap that rating star button one, two, three, four, five times and say under your breath, I will return to hear the next episode of The Happiness Lab with Dr. Laurie Santos. Happiness Lab is co-written and produced by Ryan Dilley. Our original music was composed by Zachary Silver, with additional scoring, mixing, and mastering by Evan Viola. Pete Naughton also helped with production. Joseph Fridman checked our facts, and our editing was done by Sophie Crane McKibben. Special thanks to Mia LaBelle, Carly Migliori, Heather Fain, Julia Barton, Maggie Taylor, Maya Koenig, Jacob Weisberg, and my agent, Ben Davis. The Happiness Lab is brought to you by Pushkin Industries and me, Dr. Laurie Santos.